Investigation Safety Podcast. I'm glad you're here. Thank you. Thanks for dialing in. Now, what do you do? Downloading in. You know, listening. That's what I'm getting at. So today's pod is going to be interesting. I think you're going to like it a lot, but it may not be for everyone's taste. And you know what? That's okay. It's not going to not be for your taste, but today's pod is going to ask you as a listener of the pod to put in a little effort. So be ready, it's coming, because I'm honored and privileged to do something I've been asked to do, and that is we're going to uh, replay Eric Hallnagel's presentation at the 2023 Safety 2 in Application Conference that was held in St. Petersburg, Florida. It was an interesting, great conference. I had a great time, tons of fun. The bicycles were broken. You know, that's a long story. We can talk about it later, but tons of fun. And Eric gave a presentation and he's right on the heels of recovering from a significant stroke. And he's going to talk about that a lot. He went ahead and presented, which I thought was really amazing. And what he said was even more amazing. And the way he said it was kind of hilarious, but you can tell it's an effort for him to be there. And it's going to ask some of you to listen to it, but I think it's completely worth doing because this is a chance to really take a snapshot into what Eric Conlingle's thinking about in the world and the work that he's done for his whole life and that work that you're doing for your life as well. So the chance to hear this, well, it's, a, it's worthwhile. And I think you're going to find it amazing. And so I'm going to kind of shut up and let it happen. You will tune to his speech in moments. It will not take you long to normalize to it. And once you're there, you're on, you're on for the whole ride. So no problem at all. Sit back and relax. This is the great Eric Hallnagel and his presentation at the Safety 2 in Application Conference. Before we start, I should, that's one thing I need to say. That is, if you ever are unlucky enough to get an email from me, at the bottom, it says the difference between what you can imagine and what can happen is larger than you can imagine. And that happened to me last year. I woke up one morning lying on the floor and had a stroke. I never imagined that. So I'm still suffering from that. Hence, my speech is slightly incomprehensible. But at least I have a good excuse now if you don't understand me at all. And when I, as I prepare for this, I... I had the, the usual number of slides, but I've cut them down dramatically. I realized today it doesn't really matter because in the old days you would show a slide and you talk about it, but now you show a slide and everybody takes a picture. And so it does matter if you don't understand me. It's worth it if you don't understand what you took a picture of. And don't come back and ask me about it, please. <laughs> because I'm not sure I have the answer. So this is what I'm going to talk about. Why learning from accidents doesn't help to, to improve safety. And uh, see if we can get to the next one. So I think I'll start here because we, we talked a lot about safety. And of course, we all know that safety is the problem 
But I think I wasn't here all day yesterday, but I think you were discussing also what is safety actually. So if the only thing we could say is that the lack of safety is very costly. I was just taking some some statistics you can find. You know that tra traffic accidents is by far the, far the, the most costly. 508 giga, a billion dollars, that's quite a lot of money, even in euro. I won't even mention Danish Kroner, which is, uh, I can't even do the calculation in my head. So I think, I mean, I look around for definitions of safety and I find many different definitions and I'm not sure whether safety is a quality or quantity. Here's here too, safety is the freedom from unacceptable risk. That's a quality. And safety is the activity of ensuring that accidents are avoided. avoided. And, you know, believe it or not, there's something called which has another definition. It says safety is concept that includes all measures and practices taken to preserve the life, health, and bodily integrity of individuals. So it's about protection. It's about things not, not happening. So you need to ask, what, what is safety actually? Because there are so many definitions around. And as you know, we now we, it's now common to talk about two two interpretations, which are called safety one and and safety two. And safety one is that the number of things that go wrong is as small as possible, and that leads to the to vision, to the target zero. That is no accidents. And I think the the opposite that that we come up with is that safety is a condition where the number that go well. I won't say right, I want to say it's as high as possible. And uh, I call that target kingdom. Kingdom is Latin for 100. So the target is 100% where everything you, do, everything you do should go well. And I think that's what we're interested in because if something goes well, it can't, it can't fail at the same time. You might as well turn it around instead of preventing from failing. That's why I have the coin here. You have a biased coin, so it comes up hit, hits all the time. But that's cheating. That's what you want to do. You want to cheat so you get hits all the time in your work, of course. So I think this this brings me, one way of phrasing it is, the question is not to be or not to be, it's to do or not to do. Should we focus on what we should do or what, on what we shouldn't do? I think classical safety, we focus on what we shouldn't do. And we tell people, don't do this, don't do that. Here's another procedure that tell you what you shouldn't do. But I think it's more important and it's much easier to tell people what they should do and they like it more. Nobody likes to be told, don't do that. If you want to design a work environment, it's more important to tell them what to do and not, than to tell them what not to do. So that's why I've taken the liberty of distorting Shakespeare a little bit here and say, so I think it should, it should be to do or not to do. I won't do the whole soliloquy. I'm sure, I'm sure you'll be happy about that. So 51, which, which is also called protective safety. 
it's about protection and 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 the the, the metaphor is the glass that's filled with things that go wrong and you want to have it empty that's a zero vision so you you look at what's in the glass and you try to understand it and you try to find find ways of removing removing it that's a classical way of doing safety of course you can have the opposite where you say you still use the analogy with the glass but you want to have it full now of things that go well so that's not a productive safety because if things go well you make money also and you produce it's a win-win situation. If things go well, you don't have any accidents. You also produce and you create revenue. And that, that's, that's what safety too is about. So try to think of these, these jars and whether you want to empty your jar, you want to fill it. Another way of looking at it is and I'm grateful for Marie DeVos, a, a doctor in the Netherlands who came up with this wonderful analogy. We try to improve safety by looking at situations where something went wrong. And if something goes wrong, you say, you um, almost always say there was a lack of safety. So how can you study safety in a situation where you say there was a lack of safety? You can't study anything if it isn't there. And I like her, her analogy. Can you understand what happy marriage is by analyzing divorces alone? Of course you can't. You can say when you, when you marry, you want to try to avoid a divorce, but that's not good enough, I think. I speak out of experience. I've, I've had one divorce. And that wasn't good enough. So... But I, I hope I'll never have another one. So, so and and Tom said we should come up with some practical advice for how how to do it. So so I thought I, I I'm an academic really, so I don't know how to how to do things. And I know we're not not allowed to say philosophy here. I am okay. Thank you. <laughs> So, so this is nothing to do with philosophy. This is, I'm sure you know this one, stop, think, act. And uh, to me, the, I call this is a stop, think, act. For the safety one version, it's aimed at the shop and the people who work there, who do the work. When something happens, you say, stop, think, and then act. I think what we need is, uh, we need another version, which is for the blunt end, the safety two version. And that's what you should do when you have an incident or, or an accident, some irreportable event, you should say, stop and say, are you looking for causes, efficiency, just to find the cause and close the case? Or are you try, really trying to understand what, what went on? That's what I call thoroughness. And then think, do you, want to, uh, do you want to limit or constrain work as imagined, or do you want to facilitate and support work as done and act? I think you should engage with people at this moment because they know what's going on and get them involved in implementing the changes that you that you together agree are the right things to do to make sure that work will go well in the future. So that's my suggestion for how to how to do it practically. Think about these 
stop, think, act, and, and, and interpretation. So, I have, I have a few more slides actually. You want, me to, you want me to go on now? Yes. Okay. So this is just repeating what I've said about safety one, safety two. So safety one is what I call protective safety. And you can see the premise is that we need, we need to understand why accidents happen. And we, we define safety by its absence. I think Jimmy Rushen wrote that in a paper some years ago, but nobody pays attention to that. What they think about when you say Jimmy Rushen is Swiss cheese, and they never read any of his other stuff, which is quite good. Yeah. And that's a pity. He also, he also said safety is defined more by its absence than by its presence. And he's absolutely right. So safety is it's like this. If something bad happens, you want to get away from it. And the problem with that is, I'm a psychologist, you know, that if you want to get away from something, whichever direction you take will work because it'll take you away from the bad thing. That's why that's why that's why you need to think when something happens, it doesn't it actually matters what you do. It's not just avoiding something and getting rid of it, getting away from it. So when you look at, at the way we normally manage safety, I think you can say you manage safety by snapshots. The snapshots are the situation where something goes wrong, go wrong, and, and they happen rarely, and they're snapshots of, of a system not working. And how and what you want to do, actually, I should have a pointer now. I use this, this built-in pointer. It doesn't work here on the screen, but you, see the, you can see there's a sort of a, a, a little text about this presence of safety. So I think what well, you need to, to understand what happens up there. That's what we want to do. That's what we build. That's what we want to support. And, and to do that, it's not enough to look at the absence of safety. You need to look at what, what happens up there and understand what, what on earth happens up there if you want to do something about it. So what happens when you look at accidents we have, I've got glasses on, many of us have got glasses on. We have got different glasses on. I haven't got a label on mine, but you can see the people have glasses with labels on, human error labels, safety culture glasses, maintenance, technical malfunction, latent conditions, root causes, whatever. And, and I think this was mentioned by Todd also. I think we all know this that we have this from Heinrich, of course. He said, that's why we look at accidents and learning from accidents. We need to knowledge of the cause and to eliminate the cause. But I think one thing we should keep in mind is that when Heinrich said that was in 1931, and what was work like in 1931 compared to the work conditions we have today, I don't think they compare at all. So using this philosophy from, from 1931 doesn't actually help us because every, every method and every philosophy is to, and every model is developed to meet 
the problems of its time. And we should we should use methods and models that meet the problems of our time and not the problems of 1931, even though we've gotten used to it. And that's what they teach, still teach. So I think it's worth keeping that in mind. So that's how we think this is. I know you have Rube Goldberg here, and he does something similar. This is a Danish cartoonist who did that. And I like that because it's, it shows how you can think in terms of causes and effects. This is a lazy guy. This is in the old days before he had electricity and remote control of, of, of the light bulb. So he wanted to be able to switch off the light when he, when he was going to sleep. So he invented this. And you can sort of reason through it from, from, from where he put his finger to. And you can reason what's going to happen. And you can also reason backwards. If, if the light suddenly goes out, you can understand why, what could go wrong on the way. And that, that's, that's a nice, easy way of thinking. But the world is not like that anymore. Now he's got a remote control. And, and, uh, and uh, it can fail in many different ways. And it may also work and, and not work. If you got, he had a wife who could, you know, yell at her and say, go, go and put out the light. But uh, not this guy, he's got a dog instead. The dog is not smart enough to do that, I guess. So I think we have this, what I call linear thinking. It's so, so ingrained, we have it in absolutely everything around us. In medicine, you, you talk about the, the viruses, the germs, you make a diagnosis. We have it in physics and chemistry. We try to think in linear terms of what happens. This happens, something happened before that. And uh, you have it in genetics, you have it in, in geology. We try to understand why do you have earthquakes and volcanoes. And the interesting thing, if you ever look at that, is that every time you have a big earthquake, they come up and say, we, 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 we don't understand how this happens, so we have to revise our theories. I think it's the same with volcanoes, actually. They don't really know. You have it in criminal investigations. You try to find out who did what and, and why. I mean, that's why Sherlock Holmes is so great in, in detective thinking. So, so when things go wrong, we, we immediately say, what, what was the reason for that? What was the cause? And, and one of the popular ones is human failure a technical failure. Uh, if you can't figure out what the, what the hell it is, you say it's an act of God. <laughs> an act of nature, I think, depending on who you are and what, what you talk about. So I, I, I saw that some years ago, there was, was, a, was a bridge, a motorway bridge that collapsed in, in Pakistan. And uh, I, I have a newspaper clip from it. And, and the guys who, who beat it said that we, we never had something like that happened before, so it must be an act of God. I don't know if the authorities bought that. I hope not. So the reasoning for, for safety one is like this, that when, some, when something happens, it's because we know that all components Will hardware or software will fail sooner or later. Humans make errors, and they always will. There will always be unexpected and unrecognized situations, and combinations can hide sneak faults and other flaws. 
And conversely, when things go well, it's because systems are well designed and perfect, perfectly maintained, and people, people behave as expected, or and as instructed as we tell them to. So work is done is, is the same as work is imagined, and procedures are complete and correct. I'm sure you agree with that. Designers can anticipate and prepare for every contingency. That's why we don't have accidents, and that's that's a way to make sure we don't have accidents. So how do we explain failures? We we, we look. I'm sorry, sorry to apologize for, for the scream here. You know, there was a, a it, 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 it produced TV. From years ago, that, that said, had this picture, and, and he said, the title of that is, Where Are My Earrings? And I'm not sure Mok would have liked that. So we look for failures, and, and we have sort of a standard repertoire of courses that we apply. And again, coming back to the glasses, we have different glasses on. And one important concept is what you look for is what you find. Because you have something in mind and you look for it. And then you then maybe you find it. It's not because it's actually what was there, it's because you looked for it. If you look for, for human error, you, you're bound to find it because there are always people in the system and they always do things that are different from what, they, what you would like them to do because they are, they, are, they are creative and adaptive and flexible and you try to make things work. So what we do is we like what I call simple explanations and I call them monolithic explanations using the idea of a, of a monolith from Kubrick's 2001, you remember that. So we like monolithic explanations, you know, simple, single explanations as there are one hole that you can't break down into anything. And we like monolithic solutions also to go with the monolithic explanations because that's nice and easy as a one-to-one -one correspondence. So I, I just just for fun, I, I tried to make up a timeline of these explanations. We have human factors started in 19, about 1948, complexity in 1984 with Charles Perrault's book, and uh, human error, human reliability after TMI in 1979, safety culture after Chernobyl and Charity in 1986. That's a, that safety culture is surely a monolithic explanation. You say safety culture, that's it. Situation awareness in 1989. And more recently, I saw somebody suggested organizational blindness. I'm not sure what that is. But that's, that's an if you if you only overcome that, that's the main reason why things go wrong. And, but I also think we use them in in in, in, in stereotype ways. We use them either as a factual cause that that's what was there, and that's why it went wrong. Or as a counterfactual cause, we say we think it was there, and if it hadn't been there, then it would have been fine. And uh, we also use it as a hypothetical solution. You say. We should. We need more of that. We need more safety culture. We need more situation awareness, or whatever it is. Then, then, then uh, we need more resilience. I should say that because 
we've been working on resilience engineering for some years too. Uh, and sometimes people say you you need more, and that's what that's what we feared when we started. That people would interpret it in that way. You say we just need more resilience. Could you pull some resilience into the organization, please? Or can you? I mean, I, I saw. Um, some years ago, they were trying to design cockpits that increased situation awareness. I'm not sure how that would work. And the problem is with all of these nice concepts, there's no theory behind them. They just sound extremely plausible and people buy them. But uh, that's also what I call it. I mean, Eric Fromm was a, a US, very famous US psychoanalyst. And I think he says something that's very, very appropriate to this. The quest for certainty blocks the search for meaning. But another guy who wasn't a psychoanalyst, but a great philosopher, Nietzsche, said something much longer because he was a philosopher. So he couldn't make it short. So you can see here, and I won't read it. He says, the first principle is any explanation is better than none. And I think that's quite true. The, the course-creating drive is just conditioned and excited by the feeling of fear. And, and conversely, we, we can avoid that if we look at safety too and say we're not interested in failures and why failures happen. We're interested in, in, in things going well and, and therefore we should be interested in why things go well. And the nice thing of that is that if you, unlike failures, if you, if you have a failure and you want to get away from a bad situation, any direction is good. If you want to get to a good situation, there's only one way to go, but you need to find it. So it's not avoidance, it's approach we should be considering. And when you manage, Safety, we shouldn't manage it by its absence, but by its presence. We should look at what happens about, about the, 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 the axis, the presence of safety. What, what characterizes the presence of safety? And so here's the, here's the, the logic of safety too. You see, when, when, when nothing happens, it's because when things go well, it's because humans find ways to overcome design flaws and interests. It's because performance, they adjust their performance to, to meet the demands and the conditions. It's because procedures are used in the context of the situation, and it's because they intervene when things look like, like they may go wrong. And if you, see, if you then look at why do we have accidents, we have accidents for the very same reasons. And we need to understand that. We need to, to look at that better. But the truth is, if you look around it every day, most of what we do goes well from morning to night. And if you go to the supermarket here and you you look for something, it's there on the shelf. And if it's, if it's not, you say, why the hell wasn't it there? What are they thinking of? But if it's there, you never say, why is it there? which you think you should because it's a small miracle, actually. 
and usually usually it's there and usually things go well and you should you we the funny thing is we never stop and and I wouldn't say worry about it. We never stop and, and consider why things work. We always consider why they don't work because that's unexpected. It, it's, it, we just expect it to work, but in some sense, it, it's just as unexpected when, when things work as when they don't work, if you look at it in, in the right way. So, so why do things then go well? And we have, have some... Sorry to say that we have some theory about that. It comes from resilience engineering. You say things go well because we are able to respond in a flexible way to, to what happens. We are able to learn both from what works and from what doesn't work. We are able to monitor what goes on. There was this question in panel debate yesterday. I can't re don't remember who asked that about monitoring measurement and so. Afterwards, I thought of, of another example. Say when I think it was a lady who asked the question. I say I always want to say to her, "You cook a meal. Do you monitor or do you measure?" I don't think you measure very much. You monitor. You simply know you sort of you start in the pot and you sort of have the feeling this is right. But there's no measurement of force and torque that tells you, "No, no, I need to put a little more of that in, into it." We do, so we we monitor all the time and we do it very well. And the last thing is we, we are able to anticipate to look ahead to see what's coming. And I think that's why I think go well, because we're able to do these these four things, which we call the systemic potentials. And that's what you that's what you should nourish and, and build and support in an organization, because then you will also be safe and you will be very productive at the same time. I think that's good. So remember that respond. Monitor, learn, and anticipate. So I, I told you what we shouldn't learn from. That's what Heinrich wrote in 1931. So what should we learn from? We should learn from what happens and, and how, it, how it happens. We should look at what people actually do and, and try and learn from them. We, the other day, as we were walking down the street, we saw a guy going up on a ladder to, to take down one of the Christmas decorations a little bit early, I think. You know, a very tall ladder. And there was another guy standing at the foot of the ladder, holding a ladder. And there was another, another guy in a tree nearby with a rope. And the guy who climbed up the, the ladder had a rope in his hand. And I thought, that's not going to help very much if he falls. Unless he's got very strong hands. Uh, but when I see that, I always say, someone say, still, he's done it before, and nothing, he hasn't, hasn't killed himself before. That's why he thinks it works. And that's why people, people do things. They've done it before and it worked. That's why they keep doing it. And we need to, we need to look at the situations they're in and try to understand why they're doing it and, and how they're doing it and also why, why they come to, to this. This habit and a sort of maybe even a social norm. This is what you do. You you don't be a sissy. Don't tie it around your waist. Hold it in your hand. And uh, I think that's what we should, that's what we should learn from. We should learn from. I've used the phrase terms before. Work as done, not not from work as imagined. That, that's very important. 
see what actually happens and try and learn from that. And sometimes, sometimes you'd be surprised at what happens. I think we can also look at ourselves and say, how often do we think, do we do things exactly the way they should be done? It, because we know we're smart and we know in this situation, this is a good way of doing it. So we know, we know this works by experience. So, so that's what we do. And we know it's, we know it's not dangerous because we had never been hurt by it. I, I remember once in, in, in South Africa, I had a bunch of, of, of work inspectors and talked to them. And I said to them, be honest. How many of you get into your car and start to drive and put, then put on the safety belt? And about half of them raised their hands. Uh, because you you, should, you, should, you know, of course, you shouldn't do that. You should put on your belt before you start to drive, even the first meter, because we know where the mo- most accidents happen. They happen in the, in the first 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 bit of the movement. And many people sort of forget that because they've been doing, doing it all their lives and they haven't had a crash yet, so it's perfectly safe to do it like that. And and they save, you know, maybe half a second every time. And I don't know what 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 that amounts to through a lifetime, but I know what it, what could happen if, if if something goes wrong. And it's more than half, half a second that you lose. So another thing that's important is is in when we deal with with with, with safety and every, anything else that you say, I I want to say the problems and solutions must match. So simple problems could possibly have simple solutions, but complex problems never have simple solutions. And, and discuss, discussing a complex problem as a simple problem by offering a simple solution, actually it doesn't make the problem any simpler. It only makes it almost certain that the solution is not going to work. So that's, that's what you need to keep in mind. I, I know I'm making your life difficult, but that's why I'm here. <laughs> and I think that was the end of it. Simple answers to complex problems don't simplify the problem, and it makes your life harder. And that's why he's here. I really appreciated the opportunity to share that with you guys. Mostly, I just really appreciate Eric Hallmichael. What a great human being. And he's done great things, and he's still doing it. He's still out there chomping away at it. Man, what a deal. So that's the pod. I can say no more. I can add nothing other than to say learn something new every single day. Bet you did today. Have as much fun as you possibly can. Be kind to each other. Be good to one another. Check in on one another. And for goodness sakes, you guys, be safe. (laughs) 